What up, what up? Welcome to episode 123 of Keep the Kayfabe. I'm Mike, sitting here with my boys, ready to talk some wrestling. And this is an extra special episode of Keep the Kayfabe. We've been kind of... Uh, toying with the format a little bit, experimenting with some stuff. If you've been listening these past couple months, we've had some interchangeable members come in uh, with our takeovers, with our friends Gary. But we're also talking about new concepts that we want to expand the brand of Keep the Kayfabe. When we started this whole thing, it was just a group of guys that didn't even really know each other. We never even like watched an actual wrestling match in the same room, all of us. We just had a common thread of passion for wrestling, but we started a group a group chat and I was like, Hey, why don't we start a podcast? And it was during COVID. It was just kind of like an exercise for our minds and uh, kind of save time from being on our phones all day. And now we're into episode 123. We've done a lot of things and want to do more. So we're actually all getting together. Uh, we're inviting uh, our special guest into the ring with us. And making this a fatal four-way takeover tonight. And uh, this is something that we always wanted to do. Uh, during AEW, when it first was conceptualized, I was like, well, this is the perfect time to start a podcast. Let's get on AEW on the ground floor and, like, let's be a flag bearer for that great brand and federation. But this was something I was like, you know, there's members, Steve in particular. Gary, I don't know you that well just yet, but I will a lot more. But I was like, Steve kind of reminds me he's a very... He's a very astute man. And I was like, you know, it'd be cool if he did like a deep dive on a particular wrestler and we were just kind of students of the game. And um, we're going to try that tonight. So we're really excited. And it kind of comes off of something that came uh, as a tragedy. Uh, it was the Bushwhackers. One of the members died recently this April. Butch Miller. Bushwhacker Butch. And um, yeah, you might have heard our takeovers after... Uh, Lanny Poffo uh, after he passed away. But I just think this is just something that I think is, it, it's sad, but we also want to do this as an honor for people that have literally given their life, body, time, energy, sacrificed so much for our entertainment and for probably their own reasons that we may not know, uh, but it is, they have a passion for wrestling and we want to honor them. So, this episode is dedicated to Bush, Bushwhacker Butch and the Bushwhackers, and we're going to take a deep dive into their careers. But before we do, we got to introduce the boys real quick. I mentioned some of their names, but I want you to hear their voices over in Glendale, the guy who keeps it regal, Mr. Steve Grobschmidt. What up, Grabby? This isn't Steve. This is Greg the Hammer Valentine, and I just want to say you keep the kayfabe, guys. You're doing a great job, and uh, I hear there's a rumor I might be talking to you guys in the near future, and Linda McMahon's going to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi. Thanks, Greg. Um, Thanks for the intro. Uh, Steve here. I'm looking forward to this discussion very much for all the reasons oh, that Mike said. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. Greg was popping in. Good to hear from him. He already yeah, logged like a... off. Oh. 
yeah, we're like I said, we're trying something new, actually getting big, big stars on. So, yeah, it's, you know, just a little, just a nice little Tuesday or Wednesday over here, whatever day it is. But anyway, thank you, Steve. Good to hear from you. And yeah, we have some news in the pipeline that we can't wait to share for you. Uh, nothing hasn't been official yet, so we don't want to give you too much, but it's very, very exciting. And if you're a longtime mm-hmm. listener, you're going to fucking cream your pants. Anywho, <laughs> let's get down I, to I Bayview. I just did. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, this is over Zoom. Very thankful. Anyway, his his next entry is the man with the sticky keyboard, Mr. Steve <laughs> Grobschmidt. Yes. Anyway, let's move her along mm. down to Bayview. Mm. My guy who keeps it freshly squeezed, Mr. Matt Michelson. What up, Matt? Bang, bang. Oldie, but a goodie. Very good. Yeah. Cactus Jack. Short, sweet, precise. That's why I Indeed. like you, Matt. You've been doing good, buddy? I have, yeah. I'm really looking forward to talking about something a little bit different tonight. And admittedly, I don't know a ton about the Bushwhackers, so Mike and I both are going to be just the students tonight, and we're going to hear from the Grandmasters themselves. Word up. Over in Ohio, it is the man with the golden pipes, Mr. Gary Williams. What up, Gary? How are you, my friends? Uh, you know, I was going to do uh, Dr. Britt Baker DMD, but then after the uh, other reference, I feel like I need to pull a, a Matt Michelson and go, hello, ladies. No! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it seemed apropos after all that we've been through just in this last little bit. Um, the excitement that Mike has, I wanted to just, you know, provide him some continued support for that excitement. So, um, Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah, we like to keep it hyped around here. And we don't just that? get hyped. We stay yep. hyped. Yeah. You know it, bro. I'm tr- it's Thanks for listening, what, Mojo Raleigh. What makes your nipples hard? That's right. <laughs> I know. I was trying to throw Steve an alley oop there, and he didn't even let me throw the alley oop. He just good. took the goddamn ball and slammed it. Because we're on the yeah. same team. Same team. Word up. Yeah, we know awesome. each other. All right. All right. So Woo. this is the crew, and this is what we're doing tonight. Like I said, we're uh, trying a little something new in the KTK brand, and uh, we're going to take a deep dive into the career of the Bushwhackers. But they weren't the Bushwhackers right away. They were somebody else. They went by the name of the Sheep Herders. What's this all about, guys? Tonight really is going to provide both you and the listeners an amazing journey of of kind of like a, a a look back into what professional wrestling was and then its evolution while describing almost in the same way just this amazing um character evolution that the bushwhackers took on in the late 90s you know most current day wrestling fans um that are not in steve they're not in steve and i and our generation um and even in our generation i would say it's very split because mainstream didn't see um, the sheep herders as often on television as they probably did and much later and saw their transformation in WWF in the 90s but but yes they uh, this group um you know uh, Brian Wickens was his original name he goes by Luke Williams in the ring he and Butch Miller started a group uh, way back in 1966 uh, in New Zealand and they were called the Kiwis um, mm-hmm. and that was their original name began 
they began their wrestling careers where they really um where they really took off was when they made their way from New Zealand uh, to Canada. Um, and at the time, there were two major territories um, that existed. There was Stu Hart's Stampede Wrestling, and many of the listeners know that Stu Hart, obviously, of the Hart Foundation, Hart Dungeon, Bret Hart, etc., Interesting to note that um, Abdullah the Butcher, um, I think both of you may know who Abdullah is, but Abdullah was known as this uh, terrorizing figure, and he also got his start in the Canadian area. Um, so the very first um, re- real night in Stampede, um, the sheep herders are, in- are introduced, and they're trying to find a way to introduce them to the crowd while also getting them to understand the depth of their of their meanness and violence and just and which again is very contrary to what a lot of people see of today's bushwhackers um they were this ultra violent hardcore before hardcore happened and so ironically the very first story that i found was abdullah the butcher is is being paired with them and he also was an ultra violent character and he decides at the end of the sheep herders match to bring in um, they're going to they're going to continue the beat down on the two guys that they had this tag team match but they're also going to throw in kids into the ring so they decide wow. to throw these kids in the ring well who are those kids Bret Hart, Owen Hart, little oh, little hearts. I mean, all of Stu's kids. So they get tossed into the ring and they and they put the beat down on them and they just get <laughs> massive heat. And yeah, things that you'd is never see nowadays. Never. I mean, no. you you talk about child abuse. And so MJF throws a beer at a kid and it's yeah. like, oh my god, he crossed the line. <laughs> this was like beating I mean, up kids. I mean, you want to talk about heat generation that truly defined <laughs> heat generation and got them off on their start um apparently Stu Hart wasn't quite in on it so he couldn't figure out what was going on but it, it all get it all must have gotten itself armed I don't know I I don't know if it's urban legend I don't know for sure I can't I can't reveal my source but that was the very first real angle that they were in which included little kids yeah, it's really not better way to get heat than that, is there? No, no, not at all. And so, um, and so, you know, the sheep herders. Um, what's really interesting is they they really took on this persona of these ultra violent, mean kind of foreign characters. Um, they actually had really long hair, um, their beards, everything, and they always always had the gorilla type pants. Um, and so, you know, they they went kind of from Canada back to New Zealand. They kind of started in Japan a little bit. And then they found their way in 1979 to the Pacific Northwest, which was a huge territory. So one aside that I kind of think is important is every territory had its flavor. And so um, whether it was from Florida, the Florida Territory, Georgia Championship, Mid-Atlantic, WWF, AWA, Memphis, Texas, out to Portland and Stampede. Every territory had its kind of shtick. And Portland, um, as well as Texas and Memphis, uh, they were notoriously known as brawling territories. So these were where 
guys were literally it was like a barroom brawl every night and um, that's what you paid money to see it's it like was, you want exactly. to go see some violence mm -hmm. you go kind of like gcw but like bare knuckle yeah Great Absolutely. Analogy. Great analogy. Puerto Rico is the same way. It was all blood and guts, literally blood and guts, mm. like every match had blood in it. And and then, you know, Crockett and the AWA the, were kind of known as the Olympic, like the wrestling territory. So they were known as guys who really had a wrestling persona. The WWF, even back into the 70s, was always known as it took on its persona from New York. It was about bigger, larger than life characters. And it was really entertainment. I mean, wouldn't you agree, Steve? Oh yeah. I mean, like you said, that's the precursor to, uh, obviously Vince Jr. Took that tenfold, but mm -hmm. yeah, it was the, yeah. And yeah. And I, I mean, like you brought up the AWA for like, you know, like people like Vern Gagne and, um, some of the wrestlers we've talked about in other episodes, Ken Patera, these people with Olympic like pedigree were like the big stars there. So yeah, it's definitely like, there was a flavor, like you said, to every one of them. Um, so naturally it's, you know, them going to this, uh, brawling, uh, um, promotion made perfect sense given how violent they were. Yeah, and and so Gary, I before we started recording tonight, you had sent us some matches and some videos of the Sheep Herders, and one of them was their first match in the Portland Territory. Admittedly, I only got about five minutes into it, but I got I got far enough into it to see a moment where there's a tag, but there's no tag, and it's basically when the ref's back is turned, one guy jumps out of the ring, the other guy jumps in and goes for a pin. The crowd is losing their minds over the fact that the sheep herders <laughs> broke the rules. And it's so funny to see that nowadays because um, one of our nieces actually was making a comment the other day because we were talking about pro wrestling. And she mentioned that it's it's crazy how there's rules but they never follow them. And that was not the case back in this era. People no. followed the rules. And when they didn't, they got massive heat for it. And the sheep herders were no different. Realism was the key, right? So like literally the kayfabe was the most important thing. So if it wasn't real, people were freaking, I mean, they lived and died by the, what was going on. So those, um, but so that shtick, Matt, that you saw in that match was um, they used it in two different ways. One way they did the swapping, but ironically in a lot of their later matches, they actually did the reverse. So the, because they were already known as this ultraviolent cheaters and, you know, dastardly kind of characters, what would happen is they always got pit up against the pretty boy teams. And there were many amazing pretty oh, yeah. boy teams of the, of the late, uh, of the early and mid eighties. Um, in fact, many uh, that we'll get to, but one of their shticks then was they would start the match and then the good guys would actually do the clap and act like there was a tag and the sheep herders would start going bonkers that the good guys were cheating and they were then drawing heat because of that. So if I actually, there were, so they use that shtick depending on where they were. If they if a if the territory didn't know them, then they did the cheating. If the territory knew them, then they had the good guys do the proverbial <laughs> cheating. And it just generated this amazing heat. So simple. 
very such a simple. simple really is like, yeah simple. okay like what do we like <laughs> we cheat or we don't like cut and dry payment yeah it's great and, and then so they it's either we cheat yeah either we cheat or you cheat and then we get heat we have the comeback and then <laughs> invariably almost every match ended with the big flagpole getting whacked yeah. over somebody's <laughs> head and you know or if it was the culmination then they then then what would happen is they would either um they would then miss with the flagpole hitting one of their own and of then course. that's how the pin would be so yeah i mean but it was a great great story every time like it's it was just uncanny how simple it was yet very effective well and like to your point too which we'll get to here um the fact that they were these rough and tumble like guys and then of course they put them up against these like white meat baby face pretty boys it's oh. like the, the dichotomy is so great and it's yeah. like i mean one I of mean, my all-time favorite teams was a big rival of theirs the fabulous ones absolutely and that was those were the those right there were amazing you know but before we get to that just one little yeah. aside after portland <laughs> believe it or not during the portland territory again and matt and mike i'm not sure you know from your you know remembrance or hearing of the territory days but one of the more classic angles at the end of a blow-off was a loser leave town match and so of course the sheep herders are in a against the pretty boys of portland which were believe it or not rowdy piper rowdy piper and rick martell that's who were the pretty boys in the portland territory <laughs> and so in essence, they had a hair versus hair match, and that's how they lost their hair. And then they stay sh shaved the rest of their career, um, mm, wow. basically lost their hair in that match. And then, you know, subsequently, a loser leave town match. They then end up going across the country into the Crockett territory, which was, you know, at that time, mid-Atlantic, basically the NWA, although they were all kind of within the umbrella they go to Mid-Atlantic, and that's where, uh, in an interview that I saw, Butch Miller admits they made one of the biggest mistakes of their career. And this was what was really was really interesting, because remember now, we're talking about 1980-ish, uh, give or take. Um, and in essence, there were only three territories that had exposure on a grander level than just their local television. So most of the territories were very localized. The AWA, WWF, and the NWA, or the Mid-Atlantic, those were the three territories that had started to make the break for larger audiences. AWA started to move to this brand new concept. I don't know if you've heard it. Called, I think it's called ESPN. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with it at all. Um, no, but, no, no, no playoffs tune in everybody sorry i know i know and then uh wwf was on new york television so just its own was a huge entity and then wtbs the superstation the first superstation started you know with the um, the nwa so so what butch miller talks about is they go to mid-atlantic and and they basically kind of like decide this is their first time when they get some sort of national exposure they end up making this decision to be like yeah this is fine but we're not sure we're we're as we're being treated as well as we should be so they decide to go to puerto rico where their style the ultra violent style is in 
to they trade the payday. They basically get about the same paydays, way better climate, and way way fewer dates, same amount of pay. But they admittedly said then they disappeared, like literally they almost disappeared off the map then because they were no longer being exposed to television the way and all had. these big outlets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did they get back on the on the scene? So interestingly enough, they go to Puerto Rico and they're <laughs> you're gonna riots. Riots is what gets them on the scene. I mean, in essence, they would get generate so much heat that they would have to be protected going in and out of arenas because or or the stadiums basically is what Puerto Rico was known for. They were known for these stadiums. Um and they would have they would have these riots and it would be just insane. Like just madness. Right. So um, I just think that is so awesome. I'm just going to interject there right there. It's almost like Beatlemania of wrestling. (laughs) Absolutely. In an inverse, a violent way. Yeah. Because I think Beatlemania will never, ever happen again the same way, like cross continental, like that kind of fandom, like hysterical fandom that Mm -hmm. will never, no one will ever do that again. And like the fact that, you know, wrestling is entertainment and it's a show mm-hmm. <laughs> that it motivated people enough to like want to kill somebody is kind of fucked up, but kind of amazing <laughs> too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So Super. I appreciate well, that. Well, yeah. And that's, you're right. That's an era that'll never come back. And also, I mean, we've told these stories before on the show, but the reason why Jim Coronet like loaded his mm-hmm. um, uh, tennis racket it's like to defend himself because yeah, there's even like little old yeah. ladies that would try to beat the crap out of them. And I mean, that's, that's, that was wrestling at that era. It's not that, I mean, maybe some people thought it was real, but regardless, it was the emotions of it. And it was like, Oh my oh. God, these dastardly heels Intense. are doing stuff. Yeah. I mean, you, you even do some YouTubing on, on a 1980s Puerto Rican shows. Carlos Colon is, you know, in essence, the, the father of Puerto Rican wrestling. He was the, mm-hmm. the true hero. I mean, he was a masterful storyteller, like would always just be bloody and just these gory and he would just get beat up. And, but these people would just want to come to his aid every time. And it's just, and literally, you know, it's, it was fun. It was a fun listen, but to your point, Matt, once they figured out, they're like, well, this is a little too much. We need a guy. Um, Luke and Butch actually split up. Um, Butch went back to New Zealand because he wanted to be with his family. So Luke's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta move on. So where does he go? He ends up going to the Memphis territory, also, also known as a high, high wrestling, violent kind of area with Jerry Lawler and all of the things going on there. He then carries on. Abdullah the Butcher was over there too, right? It's pretty popular. Pretty much everybody went through Memphis, to be honest with you, Mike. I mean, it, it was the. You know, there were a lot of these territories, especially that one, you know, mm-hmm. where it, they did that. But that, you know, like the greatest story angle in Memphis is, is you know, Andy Kaufman. That whole thing was just amazing. Like, but right. the realism, the intensity. So Luke goes to Memphis and that's when he and so Butch goes to, back to New Zealand. He does some, you know, basic independent wrestling kind of over there. So Butch teams up with a guy that becomes the 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 new sheep herder that is his name's Jonathan Boyd and Jonathan Boyd and Butch Miller took violence to the extreme and they ramped it up and i don't know what it was 
But there are a lot of people who say that the the years in Memphis and then in Southwest Championship Wrestling with Jonathan Boyd and Butch Miller were the roughest that, that ever the sheep herders had ever seen. Bloody, bloody match. They, they, they instituted a coal miners glove match. with, <laughs> And a lot of their feuds were with, as Steve mentioned, the fabulous ones. And that was one of Steve's growing up. Um, Steve, that was one of your favorite teams. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I like my brother who's long since not into wrestling. I just, I have this memory of from childhood. I think when they were in the AWA, that was like his favorite team. But Steve Kern and Stan Lane, which those of you maybe know, Steve Kern would have gone on to be things like the Skinner. If you guys remember him from the ni- early nineties, WWF, he like had this goofy, like gator wrestling, like, 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 hunter kind of thing and then stan lane would go on to be like as much popular as anybody in the midnight express you know like he was like kind of in their their second iteration when they were wildly popular so they were like these super pretty boys they came out to zz top sharp dressed man and stuff yeah Yeah. ultra baby face baby faces and yeah so the sheep herders and the fabulous ones are two completely dichotomous right complete you're talking about pretty pretty boys and then these ultra-violent guys, they basically traded back and forth, which was also a pattern at the time. Uh, it was a way to generate um, house house buys because, remember, the vast majority of money at that time that was being raised by any territory was their gate. It wasn't television, and it wasn't commercials, and it wasn't advertisers. It was gate. So what they would do is um, the sheep herders would, and fabulous ones would go to a city – and the sheepers would lose the title. And then they would come back maybe a month later, wrestle somewhere else, and then they'd switch the title. So I think they did that four times with what was called the AWA Southern titles. Um, and it was just a, a, an amazing run. Uh, and then, in essence, they then decide once their shtick is up in a place, right, they run their course, then they go to the next place. And the next place they went to is an area known as Southwest Championship Wrestling. Now, what's really fascinating about Southwest Championship Wrestling is it's also um, uh, an ultra, was an ultra-violent territory. But it, it actually had Southwest Championship Wrestling before the WWF used to be on the USA Network. It was one of the very first uh, territories to go on USA. They got kicked off of USA Network because <laughs> of a bloody violent match that occurred. Now, it didn't happen to be with the Sheep Herders, but it was because of their blood and guts, they got kicked off of the USA network. Um, so Butch and Jonathan go, Jonathan gets in a car accident, busts up his leg. So he becomes more of the mouthpiece. And then Butch comes back in and returns and they rekindle um, their relationship. Um, what, before I forget one amazing story too. So this is about the time when the road warriors are like literally getting their start. And they were a horrible heel team. Like they would come in and just literally roughhouse, throw guys out of the ring. Their matches were basically two to three minutes of just a complete squash. So they get brought in. So you want to talk. So talk about at this point now, they get brought into Southwest to be, to go against the sheep herders. The the sheep herders are so awful. That the road warriors became the baby faces. And that was the, one of the turning points. But a hu- hilarious story that Butch and Luke um, had on a podcast that I listened to. 
they won the first time they got together with the Road Warriors, the match Road Warrior um Hawk had never wrestled past five minutes. He was so gassed that he was puking outside <laughs> of the ring multiple times while they're like having this match. And the sheepers are basically laughing because they're trying to carry these guys along for a, a halfway decent match and they're throwing up. And so do you guys know about the mist that Asuka throws and all that stuff that, that was originated with a guy named the great Kabuki and Muta, the mist. So apparently a little kid at the side of the ring said, can't make this up, turned to his dad and was like, Oh, look, that guy's uh, throwing out the mist too. It's green. <laughs> it's, oh absolutely hilarious story. Hilarious. It wasn't uh, like three bottles of Jägermeister that he drank at the bar. Well, Cause he was one of the hardest partiers of all you, time. Hawk. Right. It's it's very possible. It's very possible that I could have had something, but they they were but the sheepherders were 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 retelling the story and basically they're like they're like these guys had never wrestled more than a couple minutes and so we're punching them and doing stuff and they're like we're gassed like in the middle of the ring so they had to do all these other goofy spots. I think I actually might have sent you one of those videos. You should take a look at it because that was that was the actual match that. Um, that I did was yeah it, I think that's the other one I watched and it just kind of falls apart after a it, few minutes and uh, the ref takes a bump I think in the moment yep. he does the road warriors get some chairs and just go to work on the sheep herders because they were I mean they literally Matt they they they, they had never wrestled matches more than ten, five ten minutes and so they were they were like so the sheep herders were got got a good laugh out of that but but it speaks to how I mean it speaks yes. to how nasty they were in their reputation that you had these like vicious villains, the road warriors, and like that made them baby faces because they were the lesser of two evils. Right. But but to that point, Steve, this also so this is where I think as, as we begin to segue into modern day, this also is the beauty of the sheep herders. They did they made money losing. They didn't make money winning. They didn't make money with titles. They made money putting guys over. And there was a lot of money to be made in that regard because the egos, right? I mean, you've got Ric Flair, you know, his type of ego and all of those other characters. These guys made a crap ton of money and they took tag teams like the Fabulous Ones, the Midnight Express, or I'm sorry, the Rock and Roll Express, um, the... Um, the, the road warriors, you know, go down the list and helped them get, develop their shtick. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of a lost thing. I think, you know, like we all get caught up, like, you know, not to get too boiled into the, 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 the current era, but you know, it's like, Oh, they brought in a Brian cage or a Lance Archer and they keep losing, but you know, there's a role in that. And those guys are really good hands you know, is it realistic to think that Lance Archer is going to win a major title in AEW in his 40s? So what else is he going to do? He's going to put over, you know, he's going to get mm -hmm. some win streaks and then put somebody over. But mm -hmm. it's like, I think that was more, I don't know. There's like, there's so many examples of that back in the era where like these mm -hmm. guys that never won. I mean, they won titles, the Bushwhackers or the oh, Sheepers, but yeah. or when they were in the WWF, which we'll talk about in a second, they never won a title, but they, they didn't, didn't, they didn't need to. Not a bit. Yeah. And so getting into the modern era and starting to talk more about their time yeah. in WWF, it's funny because right before we started recording this episode, I didn't realize that the Sheepherders and the Bushwhackers were the same team. I was like, <laughs> are we talking about two different teams tonight? So I'm really curious to hear how this transition happened. Okay, so Absolutely. Yeah. 
So Matt, this is the beauty of the territory system, while at the same token, the the real bizarreness of it that we all have talked about, which is if you were a if you were a hardcore wrestling fan, you were typically very uh, siloed into your territory because that's really all you saw. And again, there were only really and now at this time in the later 80s, there were really only four groups that you could find uh, globally. You could find the AWA. You could find the NWA, you could find the WWF, and then you could find world class out of out of Dallas, Texas. But otherwise, the the rest still, I mean, like I remember growing up hearing and reading the wrestling magazines and hearing about Memphis and all those bloody matches. And I'm like, gosh, I wish we could see those. You, you there was no way to see them unless you were back in the day, a, what they called a tape trader and you literally had VHS tapes that you would trade with people across the country so you could see these matches. And so the, this is where they made their break after um, being in the Southwest, they go to what's called the UWF. And this is the old mid South territory that was run by Bill Watts. In essence, they were at the tail end of the end of the UWF as it was eventually merging into the NWA. And so basically they run this amazing feud with what are called the Fantastics, which is another pretty boy team. Um, they run this really bloody gory feud, lots of barbed wire matches, um, uh, you know, other types of, you know, angles where they just beat the ever loving tar out of these guys. Um, and so that's when they were kind of like slowly transitioning back because at this point now the UWF was starting to get picked up by the, and eventually merged by the NWA. So it was starting to be seen on TBS again. And so it's at this point that Vince is starting to raid the territories. So he's plucking all the really good teams. And in essence, um, what ends up happening is this is about when the British Bulldogs run their course. Um, and we could do a whole episode on the British Bulldogs, but Dynamite Kid basically is starting to basically really struggle in terms of his health, his addictions, things like that. So th the Bulldogs are leaving. Um, and then there's also another really important thing, right, Steve? There's a, another really important social thing going on at this time that mm -hmm. Vince wanted to capitalize on. Should I elaborate on that? I think it would be great. Because this will also tie to another old friend of our show. But uh, they start doing, you know, like Vince did in that era and later eras where you do vignettes of wrestlers, like prepping for them to kind of get ready. You know, like they do these like weird hokey things where they're out in the wild. And they did weeks of like building up to these guys. And this was at the height of the sequel, Crocodile Dundee 2. <laughs> and I mean, it speaks, but it speaks to like, like the cultural impact of things one mm -hmm. that crocodile dundee 2 was such a big thing that they were trying to capitalize on but you know you guys have heard me not that long ago i was talking about outback jack yes. um mm -hmm. but it was like you can see vince going to the well outback jack mm -hmm. was brought out with vignettes to coincide with crocodile D dundee one he always has and he yeah. always will. Yeah. Always will. Like, and it's, wrestling and is, is such a reflection of just what's going on in our society to get people riled up and what they mm -hmm. care about. It's yep. just, it's such a, it's, that's, I think that's why I love it. Cause it kind of like, yeah. it's like you, you're still in reality, but you get to escape reality a little bit watching wrestling and be a part of 
the mm-hmm. chaos in some shape or form and you contribute to it. And I think yeah. that's what's so fun. And yeah, it is such a cultural bookmark when you look back on it. And we're like in 1988, 89. <laughs> yeah, 88, exactly. Right? Matt, to your point, here's the, here's the thing. WWF fans have always been siloed, mm-hmm. even to this day. Like if you're a WWF fan, it's, it's its own culture. Mm-hmm. And even back in the 80s, it was its own culture. So mm-hmm. they had no concept of everything else going on because they were locked into this and wrestling. And Vince sure as hell wasn't going to bring up all oh, these vicious guys, no, the sheep herders. Not. So it's like, you know, and we've talked about that before. But he never too. did. Right, he, he never, never did. did. Barry Windham, who was a guy that held the WWF tag team title in the 80s, comes back as the Widowmaker, and they act like he'd never <laughs> been there before. Like, Vince did that all the time. But but to the average fan who d- didn't follow hardcore or, you know, wrestling. Meant nothing wrestling, to him. Yeah. Meant nothing, because they had no idea who they were anyways. And, and that was truly the beauty of what kind of was going on right there. And honestly, Matt, it's the same thing going on today. Like if you think about the average wrestling fan is is commercialized to the WWF, it's its own kind of culture, right? It's its mm-hmm. own thing. And the AWA represents, or I'm sorry, the AEW now represents almost that old school territory feel. And it is, and I get, I sometimes get really angry when I hear people trying to actually compare them because honestly it's apples and oranges it is two completely different styles and it's meant to be uh yes they're trying to compete in crossover but in the grand scheme they really have different audiences yeah it's true and it's funny because as we record we're about nine minutes away from aew dynamite debuting not debuting but picking off yes kicking off on television tonight yeah so i think that you know steve you know, the 80s, the, the the 90s Bushwhackers were were just a different it was it was completely different. But how do you blame those guys after all those years of blood and guts? They get paid now to lick foreheads. Yeah. Well, and a funny little story about that. Um 1989, WWE, you know, Vince brings them in, and they were originally like, are you crazy? You're going to make us baby faces after all we did? And there was some quote, I think, I don't know if it's confirmed, but basically uh, Butch said to Vince McMahon, if you can make these faces baby face, go for it. And, you know, we give Vince shit for reinventing the past and all that, but this is like a like a success story. Like all this stuff we just talked about, about how vicious and, and damned if he didn't make them these lovable, fun-loving baby mm-hmm. Faces. And you and, have to keep in mind with something like that, though, back in that time, information was not as readily available as it is today. We didn't have the no. internet. So someone like myself couldn't go and see what were these guys doing before they came to WWF? Or that thought wouldn't even cross my mind, right? Because Gary, right. WWF was its own thing. And there was no yeah. way. And part of the reason for that was there was no way to get outside of it and see what else was out there unless you knew no. people t- traded or just. Or, absolutely. or if you were like the, you know, it's almost like the percentage of, a, of the American population that are comic book fans, whatever that number is, is very small. But it was like the percentage of wrestling fans that went and, and bought Pro Wrestling Illustrated and these other and, magazines. And, and that's, that's where, where you'd get that yeah. stuff. And there was no where, internet. Yeah. That's where Steve and I. I, you know, benefited in our childhood is because I think we gravitated early to that 
wrestling style. And so we really watched. We grew up with the AWA, which was that tweener between all of that. We loved the NWA growing up. And that's when I finally got introduced to the to the sheep herders. And so me personally, I was like, what is going on? How did they like well, how did this transformation happen? But now looking back historically, like it's brilliance. Yeah. And thinking about this, they started wrestling in 19, what what did we say? 1966, wrestling hardcore bloody matches. But here's the thing. They never did high spots. They always took care of their themselves. They were very safe. They lasted over 30 some years. And, yeah. That's and true that's professionalism right there, you know? Absolutely. Well, and it's smart when you think about it. I mean, other than cutting their faces up and stuff, it's not like they destroyed their bodies. Um, not to skip too far ahead, but I think you just, to put an exclamation on what you just said, 1966, you said they started? Yeah. In 1998, they were Luke and Butch Dudley in WECW, <laughs> and they uh, were from the down under section of Dudleyville. So I mean, it's like late nice. 90s, ECW, they made appearances, and that's yeah. how long their careers went. And they Beyond that, even, they did like the indie scene for years after that. The sad, the sad part about all of it is that the they they ended up, you know, they were they were the team that was meant to to really bring up another, you know, bring up the mid carters. So um, it was started with the Bolsheviks, um, then it was the Rougeau brothers, Rhythm and Blues, which is actually Greg the Hammer Valentine and the Honky Tonk Man, mm-hmm. and then it was the Nasty Boys, Natural Disasters, Beverly Brothers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. They were the team that was meant to, you know, help them get established because they would be, and their greatest, greatest um, contribution to WWF was in the house show loop. And they were the opening act almost on every card, which would get the crowd riled up and excited. And they would do all these funny antics. And, you know, most house shows, that's when the crowd is kind of getting there, kind of not. But it basically got everybody juiced up. And their end came because, in essence, in the late 90s, house shows kind of ended with the emergence of, of Raw. And Nitro, yeah. Um, little trivia for uh Mike and and Matt there, like in this WWF era. Do you guys remember anything about the Bushwhackers and one of the Royal Rumbles? If you don't, I'll tell you. I, I don't, unless Mike does. Well, I mean, all I, man, I know it's something. It's on the tip <laughs> of my tongue, but we don't have the time. I'll tell you. I'll all, tell you. All I know is they put their arms over their head like. Insane oh, they did. They, yeah, well, that's them. actually related to it. In 1991's Royal Rumble, <laughs> Bushwhacker Luke set a record for the shortest, and it was like seconds. He basically seconds. did what you just described. He did that hand thing coming down to the <laughs> ring, got in the ring, was immediately eliminated and then he just without missing a beat did that arm thing all the way back <laughs> and it's funny so he lasted like one second two seconds yeah. and w- look pop was enormous, enormous. Like the fans did not give a crap that he was the shortest elimination ever and hey. then for whatever reason like the warlord actually beat that like a couple years later <laughs> Bret Hart eliminated him in- like instantly but WWE years after that still always said Bushlecker Luke had the record <laughs> I mean, what are you gonna the say? fact the fact that it was the quickest 
and the pop was the hugest is so related. What does that say? Yeah, that, that brings you know, it all back. That yeah. their role yeah. wasn't to win. Their role was to get people over. And, and in, in doing so, they got themselves over. Yeah. The most it, efficient man in wrestling is the person that gets paid the most. <laughs> Yeah, doing the go. least amount of work <laughs> and go. staying true, professional, and done what he's told. Exactly. He's a goddamn superstar. That's yeah. wonderful. You're Mike, you Mike, you hit it on the head. Like, I mean, Steve and I just were talking about this a little bit, but you know, you look at these amazing athletes like Vikingo and Darby Allen today and the things that they're doing. And it's like mm-hmm. you just watch them and you're just in awe, but you're thinking to yourself, you are a split second mm-hmm. from breaking your neck. And never do and this everything again. goes away. Everything. everything that you're experiencing, like all the good things, the right, the dinners, the Step talks back. with yep. Tony, Absolutely. like you're you're gone, bro. That's it. Yep. So exactly. God bless the Bushwhackers for being able to. And then what they end up in 2015, um, getting into the Hall of Fame, and I think um, it, it is very fitting. And there were a lot of people at the time who quite honestly had very negative things to say about their induction into the hall of fame because they were like well how can you let a no-name team come in Mm. but this was a wwf audience and groups of people who had never known their true background i mean they started hardcore like they were hardcore so i think you know as we kind of like wrap this up and I really, um, you know, Steve, I'm not sure where you're at with this, but for me, um, the, the most, imp- one of the most important contributions that the Bushwhackers had was their uncanny ability to unselfishly put people over. I mean, you even think about their flag bearers. They, they brought in Jack, uh, victory and Johnny Ace, two guys who, um, well, one became John Laurinaitis, um, and the other, it, or didn't become, he was John Laurinaitis. And Jack Victory also had a great career in the NWA. They also brought in their 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 nephew, Rip Morgan, to be a flag bearer. And then you think about all those tag teams that they helped promote over their careers. Oh, yeah. Almost I mean, all those names we mentioned are legends. They're all legends. And, and they played a huge role in their antics in getting them over. Absolutely. Can't yeah. ask for more. Yeah, boys. I mean, this was absolutely amazing. I really loved our time tonight. And I think, yeah, thank you for guiding us through the history of the Bushwhackers. Um, I learned so much. And honestly, I relate with them so much. Mm -hmm. Because just like the Bushwhackers, I like to spend my life putting people over like you, Gary, Matt, Steve. Like, that's the way I like to do it. And it's only because I keep these three things in mind. What's that? Because I think I, I have a feeling whatever they are, the Bushwhackers are probably early proponents of this. Quite early. Right. And if you want to put people over in life and do the right things and be the person that strengthens the world for that matter, you got to do these three things. It's stay humble, stay hungry, and stay hard. Oh, Triple H. I met a strange lady. Woo! She made me nervous. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, Do you come from a land down under? A women go and men wonder. Can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? You better run, you better take cover.
man in Brussels. He was six foot four and full of muscle. I said, Do you speak my language? He just smiled and gave me a Vegemite sandwich. And he said, I come from.